Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Chris Prefontaine, is a three-time best-selling author of Real Estate on Your Terms, The New Rules of Real Estate Investing, and Monika Sawyer's Real Estate Investing for Women. He's also the founder and CEO of SmartRealEstateCoach.com, and host of the Smart Real Estate Coach podcast. Chris has been in real estate for over 30 years. His experience ranges from constructing new homes in the 1990s and owning a realty executive franchise to running his own investments, both commercial and residential, as well as coaching clients throughout North America. After the crash of 2008, Chris took some big hits, so he re-engineered his entire business to weather all storms and economic cycles. Understanding these challenges, he helps students navigate the constantly changing real estate waters. Today, Chris runs his own buying and selling business with his family team, which purchases two to five properties every single month. So they're in the trenches every single day of every single week. They also help their students do the exact same thing all across North America, working together on another 25 to 30 properties every month. Chris is a very experienced individual, an amazing coach, and we're having a great conversation today and digging into what he does, how he does it, and what it means to you as a real estate investor or business owner. Chris Prefontaine, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, buddy. I look forward to diving in. You know something, my uh, my introduction portions of these never do justice to what my guests do. So I always open with the question, you know, Chris, do you have an elevator pitch? You know, if somebody says to you today, Chris, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? 
in its simplest form, we help investors around the country by doing it with them, do real estate deals that don't require signing on bank loans or using their own money. That's really short and sweet. So let's uh, let's start to unpack that a little bit. Now, you are going in as a, what would we call it, a joint venture partner on this? Are these limited partnerships? What is the structure that you're putting together, Chris? Yeah, good question. Not quite that deep. So we have a coaching program whereby we show them how to do deals, but I call it interactive. I don't think there's any better way to learn. Mm -hmm. So they'll do the deal, but we're coaching them as we go. And that coaching could even mean getting on the phone with their buyer or their seller or whatever it takes. So that they're learning as they go. Because it's great to go to a seminar, but then they go in the real world and go, ah, I, I, don't, I didn't know all this stuff happened. So it's really, really interactive. It's the best way, I think, to, to learn. So you're based out of uh, Rhode Island, I think you said? Well, our family company's in Rhode Island. So yep. when I say our family company, it's my son-in-law, Zach, my son, Nick. We do the buying and selling. And then we also teach, coach, and do deals around the country with others in uh, Canada as well. So you have, well, I mean, you know, the U.S. is becoming very, very popular for real estate investors, Canadian real estate investors that want to take it outside of, you know, Canada for all the reasons that they want to do that. I mean, the Sun Belt, of course, is a very popular place for Canada to want to go. But I mean, we're, our real estate market, like much of the U.S. is on fire. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, escalation in prices and, and, and to a lesser degree, depending on what province you're in in Canada, you know, rents, you know, keeping up with rents because of rent controls uh, are, are a little bit problematic. But having said that, we're seeing more and more of our community, of our real estate investment network community wanting to go into the U.S. and see how to do that. Now, when you look at some of the U.S. States that you're investing in, are, what are you seeing for upside? What are you talking single family, multifamily, commercial? What what kind of property types do you specialize in, or do you, or do you just cover it all? Yeah, no, this is good too because we teach, so to speak. If I had to teach one thing from the platform, for for lack of a better way of saying it, we teach single family. Mm -hmm. However, uh, my own office building was bought on terms the way we buy creatively. I've done multis, we've done commercial, uh, boats, cars, and you know you can sell anything on terms, owner financing and, and lease purchase, so and buy anything. So we do all the above, but I teach staple single family. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your journey to how you got to where you are today. I mean, how long have you been in the real estate space and how did you get there? Yeah, so I've been at this 30 years, uh, Patrick. So that it started in 91, um, going on 31 years. So I started building homes. I, I, first of all, I came from a family business, not real estate. Mm. And this is a, probably an important tie because my father built a uh, industrial gas and welding supply business, nothing to do with real estate, mm -hmm. but he built his own branches around New England. And as he built those, I was too young to understand it. But as I came to understand it, he leased those buildings back to his company. And I never, as a kid, I went, what do you mean? You're both people. Like, how do you do that? But now I get it. And so I'd watch him do that. And then I'd watch him flip land and kind of got the itch. So in 91, in 1991, I started uh, teaming up with a builder, finding process of land, pre-selling them and building homes. And that took me till about two, yeah, mid nineties. And then I bought a realty executives franchise. I sold that to Coal Banker in 2000. And then I started working on, on my own investments. And as I told you before the show, started coaching a bunch of people in the um, Toronto area right around 2000. But that brought me to the lovely crash of 08, mm -hmm. uh, as I call my book, The Debacle. And yeah. so 
you couldn't convince me with all the money in the world at that time, that was a good deal, a good deal for me, a good thing. Mm -hmm. But that then was the impetus to restructure literally everything I do. I almost didn't go back into real estate. I was so beat up mentally and financially in every way, health wise, even. So um, after 08, the, the dust settled and I worked my way out of deals that I was signed on personally. It was a nightmare getting out of them. By about 12, I launched what we do today, 2012 till now. And that is everything, everything is bought on terms creatively, either owner financing, mm-hmm. uh, subject to existing or lease purchase and never, ever signing on a bank loan. That That's the big deal of how we landed here. So let's go back to the a question I partially asked, which is where... Are you a geographic specialist? What state, what cities, uh, you know, are you really looking at? And I know that probably your clients are driving some of that, but are you encouraging specific cities and slash states or how are you structuring it in that way or your thought process behind that? Yeah, it's actually what you alluded to. We, they drive it. Now, so there's two, two answers. One is locally here, we stay within the tri-state of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts in the States. Us mm-hmm. as a family business. And then with what we call associates, those are students who we've done these deals with, they are all over the country. I don't have a set thing. It's not like if I was going to go learn, let's pick multi-family. You will time certain markets. You will come in and out of trends. I completely, I teach the complete opposite, Patrick, with terms because I built this after the OA crash. And now the company, not just me, has built it to, to kind of pivot with any market, literally. So when the market gets a little bit chaotic, it's actually better for us we can solve a lot of problems that way. So I don't limit where we take on students. I more care about the student themselves. Do they live within our values? Does everything line up? Then I don't care where they are geographically. I can teach them how to do it. So when you look at what's going on economically today, so the GFC or the great financial crisis, as they say in 08, uh, different time, but it definitely, you know, set the precedent for what's happening today in terms of money printing, we'll call it that, new monetary policy, quantitative quantitative easing, then the pandemic. Now, at this point in the conversation, we're still talking a lot about what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. So when you look at what's happening economically, Chris, uh, I do a lot of study of economic fundamentals. I look at a very macro picture. I look at global economics. I certainly look at our uh, national and regional economics here in Canada. How do you see it, you know, as an American citizen investing in real estate around, you know, your country, around the U.S., what do you see happening in the real estate world and and kind of what's your thesis around where real estate's going to go and why? Yeah, I okay. I'll, I'll preface it with this. I I honestly don't think anyone can predict, right? Or I, this is my opinion. Or I wouldn't be on the show, right? Well, I, I think. Well, well, yeah. Let's preface this. We're all full of shit. We don't know what's going to happen. All we can do yes, is build a you. thesis based on, you know, I I often use the term possibilities and probabilities. You know, is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? Yet to be determined. But you have to make those distinctions. So yeah, let's preface it all by saying we don't know anything. All we're doing is making decisions based on the research and our understanding of current market conditions. And and that's all we can do. Thank you. Perfectly said. So with that as a backdrop, um, what do I think? Um, I think right now they're screaming that they're going to have at least three interest rate hikes. Mm-hmm. So what I think, or what I actually, I don't think this is a prediction. I think what we know then, if the hikes happen, 
even a quarter of a point, you're pushing hundreds of thousands of buyers to the sidelines, sadly. So why, why am I encouraged by that? Because that's what, that's who we help. So on the buyer side, we have a lot of people we can be the guide to the consumer reports, the consumer um, polls are screaming now that they more than ever since COVID, they need a guide. People want a guide, someone they can trust an authority figure on the selling side. If we are pushing hundreds of thousands of buyers out, there's an issue there. Then the demand is going to come down. Mm-hmm. So again, Whatever the chaos is, because of the terms niche that we built, I love it. I really do. I think we can help so many people, but that's where I think it's going immediately. And I think it's kind of a perfect storm, if you will, not to use that cliche, but you've got those two things I just mentioned, and you've got inevitably at some point the market's offering, right? And I say the market, I should qualify this. I think, I hope you'd agree, like there's no one market, right? No. Uh, even if, even in our tiny area here, there's a few pockets of markets. Yes. So when I say market, I say it loosely. I listen to our community. Our community is like a microcosm of society, if you will, in the States. My, mainly, there's not enough in Canada for me to say, yep, I get it. Mm-hmm. But in the States, I'll hear enough coming, go, coming and going where I'll go, okay, yeah, it's softening a little bit, generally speaking. We're getting more callbacks from sellers. We're getting more desperation because of the COVID forbearance coming to an end. Those things are inevitable. So I think it's sort of a perfect storm for us anyway. There might be people in other niches that go, oh, I, I got to back away. We're putting the gas pedal down right now because of that. So I don't know if that answered you. I hope it nailed some points. For well, you. I think it's, it, it opens up, a, you know, to me, it's about an overarching conversation about what's going on globally today, you know, and you nailed it. I mean, we know that there's no such thing as a national real estate market or an average real estate price. You have to look regionally. That's our fundamental belief system. And you, you know, right down to even at some point, the neighborhood that you're looking at. So you got to look at the economic drivers of anything. You know, it's just, I find it, I know, Chris, we didn't really discuss what we'd talk about, but I'm, I'm interested in knowing, and, it, and you may not have a, a view, and I'm not trying to catch you off guard. I'm just curious, you know, I look at what's happening in the U.S., overarching economically. I don't get so much specifically into what's happening in the real estate world per se, but I think about, you know, this rate increase that they're talking about. And I mean, the U S is talking about it. Canada is talking about it. Europe. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. There's all these conversations happening around rate increases to slow inflation. So let me break it down. My view. I just like your opinion. I don't think a interest rate is going to do what they set out to do, which is we got to get inflation under control. I'm going, blow your brains out. You can raise a rate and it's not going to change the rate of inflation. And I would expand on that, but let's, I'll stop there for now. What's your thoughts? The only reason I do agree with you is um, some of the, I know we look at historical information, or, or I don't, I'm not an economist, but I know they do. Mm-hmm. So the only reason I'm saying I agree with you uh, first and foremost is the history is not this. This is a little weird. What's going on, right? It's so, a lot weird. Um, yeah, a lot weird. <laughs> a little, better. little is an understatement yeah. from my understatement. point of view. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. So, so when I built the, this niche in 08, I went, okay, I, I kind of get this to be market changes, and that's what I had in mind. Nobody knew COVID, and then nobody knew the aftermath, and then nobody knew that the, the mutating that's been going on, and so. All that to say, I don't think they can use that. I don't think they can use the past. I don't know the answer, but I don't think they're accurately projecting what's going to happen only because they don't know. So that, although they're telling the truth, they're lying because they don't know. Nobody knows. Well, nobody knows. But, you know, for me, when I look at what's going on and because I'm old enough to have been through, you know, what was happening in the 70s and understanding that inflation was 
truly inflation. It was driven by a, an unprecedented demand of baby boomers coming through the system. And so that demand put pressure on supply just because of huge demand. The fundamental difference here in my kind of thesis, if you will, is that supply chain has limited supply, the breakdown of the supply chain, and the demand is not exceptionally high. The demand is very normal. What isn't normal is the supply. Therefore, you're seeing uh, escalating prices for from everything from transportation to labor costs. All of these things are driving it. So you can raise the rates all you want. And that, in fact, won't fix a supply chain breakdown. So that's that's part of my theory. The next part of it is that with inflation the way it is right now, if you raise rates, you know, so food, fuel, housing, off the charts. That's the primary drivers, although they don't include it in CPI. It's a, it's a driver of what's going on right now. And people will stop spending money. So if you raise rates, your cost of housing goes up, first off. Secondly, people don't want to buy, you know, those discretionary, that discretionary spending slows down because people lose consumer confidence. If you take discretionary spending and slow it down, then the economy slows down. So fundamentally, I don't care if it's the U.S. or Canada, you raise rates and you, they risk a huge economic meltdown called recession. That's what I, that's what I see. And that's why I don't believe they will raise rates. We've got a new crisis called Ukraine and Russia, which will give them permission to keep the presses running. And so that's my view of, of, of it. And now that's all to say in this, Chris, is that I still see real estate as being a great investment. You've got to get your money. You've got to put it to work because right now it's just getting eaten away. And real estate is a hard asset that you got to own. So that's my theory. Any comments? Yeah, a couple of things. So let, I'll go to the tail end of that first. So as far as putting money in the market, right? Yep. I want to stress this because there's two tiers here, how, how I teach anyway. And that is we don't put our own money in the deals anyway. However, what we're seeing in the community very recently, we started a new branch just to do this. And that is we want to help those students that truly understand our model and to your point, want to get in get in the market without your own money. Mm -hmm. But we've noticed that they are passing up some of their deals, Patrick, meaning they go, oh, Chris, I saw this deal. I know you teach this, but if I just had 20, 30, 40, 50 grand, then I have a boatload of equity I could have gotten this deal. So we are investing that way. It's a new thing for us. It's called Wicked Smart Finance. It's a whole other division. But we're, but we're, we're willing to do that only because I don't want deals left on the table but I don't want people to use that also as a, as a crutch. Um, I think to your point, the whole, the whole thing going on in Russia right now, okay, just like COVID, yet another curveball that nobody, clearly, you can't see that coming. So I hate to keep saying it, but, and I say it in the most positive way, not in taking advantage of anything, and that is we can be a guide to people. So I welcome the constant change. I don't freak out about it. I used to when I had a bunch of conventional loans and I was signed personally and I was leveraged. All those things cause headaches. The way we do it now doesn't. So I, I totally agree with your thought process. And I'm not, that's not my specialty. I totally agree with it. And I think it feeds what we're doing. Not everybody, but it feeds what we're doing. So tell me about your model. So, you know, people are going to be interested in hearing about how can I buy real estate without using any of my own money? 
And so break down the model for us and give us the steps of what you do. And, and aside from the coaching side of it and, and the guidance that you provide, what's the fundamental uh, methodology of doing the deals that you're doing? Yeah. And, and as a preface, just it was I do it the way I'm going to explain only because when I came out of the 08 crash, credit was in the toilet. Yeah. No cash. No, no savings or dry powder on the sidelines anymore. That was all used up. So it had to be built this way, and then it, and then it's thrived. So we only okay. So I just want to I want to interrupt here, just one quickly, because you've got a T-shirt on. People can't see it, but you're wearing a T-shirt that says "Bridge the Gap." Now I don't know what that means in this context, but having said that, what you just described is you have recognized a gap, and then you're going to get it handled. You, you, you got it close. I wear a different shirt every day. So this is interesting <laughs> that you asked that. So thank you. Um, yes. What bridge the gap means this in the real estate world still today. It's not like we fixed it when we can't hit that that quickly yet in the real estate world. You have, in my opinion, a problem, a challenge. And that is this big gap is created when people go would they see a seminar or they get, or they see a very good marketer on a late night TV they did a really good job of convincing them they get rich tomorrow in real estate. Mm -hmm. So they do all this stuff and then they go in the real world and it doesn't work. Or it works, but they, there's a lot more challenges. So there's a gap from the time you see a uh, seminar to the time you do a deal. And sadly, many people call me weekly and say, Chris, I've spent X on courses and I've never done a deal. So our the bridging the gap is simply us holding their hand and being interactive with them. Just so you can, I'll answer your shirt question. Um, <laughs> yes. As far as how we buy, and, this, and that's the process that fills it, is only three ways. Uh, one is lease purchase. And the lease purchase I always start with in my explanations only because any student, a brand new student, is the least risky. It's a $10 deposit written in our agreements, literally. The thousands of deals are done with our students with $10 deposit and a lease purchase agreement. It controls the property. It doesn't take ownership. It controls it. Second way is owner financing. Been around since as far back as I've read. I used to say 1800s. Now I say 1600s. I read the Vanderbilt story recently. They were talking about New York City and doing owner financing and master leases in the 1600s, which is mind-blowing. It right? is. So it's not new. It's just that we put a system around it. And so we tend to focus even more niche down in the owner financing world with free and clear properties. In other words, they're debt-free. They're a great group to deal with. I don't know the staff at Top Manhattan Canada, but in the U.S., there's a third of the properties, roughly a third, mm. are free and clear. Wow, that's yeah. a big amount of fishing. Edmonton yeah. is high, or Edmonton, uh, Canada is high as well. I want to say it's it's bumping. I know for sure it's forty percent are free and clear. It could oh, be, really? a, yeah, it's it's a high number. And and at one point it was like fifty. So it was there was it was a very wow. high number. Now that's all changed certainly over the past two or three years, but it's still a very high number. Surprisingly, no, thank you for that. I've said it even on Canadian shows, and everybody goes, I don't know. So thank you. That was a good, well, the that was thing a good is, share. is that you know the, the the boomer population in Canada is large and it is growing. And the, the boomers have, they got in early, they did all the things that they did, they were more wired to pay down debt, which they did, and that's why that shows up that way. But it's a significant number, shockingly high. Still big, yeah, still big. Yeah. So here's why I like dealing with them, then I'll say the third way, and we can unpack any of it. I like dealing with them for a bunch of reasons. They did something right, financially savvy, whatever it might be, to get to be different. Number one, number two, they don't need their money right away, most don't want it right away. They want a payment plan, whether that be for estate planning or tax reasons. 
So the very building, and I'm not in it today, the very building that has all my companies, it was free and clear, and I bought it very simply with the owner, and we pay principal-only payments. This is huge. No interest. Now, sometimes we'll tear that and change it down the, down the road if we have to, but most deals, like 9 out of 10, if not more, are done principal-only. Just think about that from our, what we talked about, the economy, you and I, from a recession kind of resistance point of view. You start hammering principal down that aggressively, and you have a five- or 10-year term. I don't care what the market does in that 10 years. I'm hammering my principal down. So I love that method. It's my favorite. And then the last is subject to existing financing. So this is more of the opposite of what we just talked about. It's more for the people that are stressed. They need debt relief tomorrow. They got a divorce. They lost a job because of COVID, whatever it might be. And we're going we're gonna to pay that loan on their behalf and we're going to own the home. But we never take that loan over for, as far as the bank signature. So the the dis- different ponds to swim in, depending on the person's circumstance, we're just looking to solve problems, right? Or help them accomplish a goal that they couldn't accomplish conventionally. That's all. Your first strategy, or one of the ways that you said it, I, I, I want you to just go a little bit deeper on that, because it sounds familiar to something that we do in Canada, referred to as an agreement for sale. And I, but I might, I might have misheard it, so I just want you to repeat it. In Australia, they call it a wrap. But so let before we go there, just repeat the first strategy that you... Yeah, because the language you choose is interesting, combined in a couple different strategies. So let me talk with the least person. You, you tell me. I know uh, a recent show I was on in Canada, the gentleman's done it for like 30 years. I don't know if they call it something different, but how it works here is this. We will enter, you're the homeowner. We will enter into a lease purchase agreement for your property, whereby there's a $10 deposit built in, fine. But all that says, that agreement says, once I install my buyer in the property, we happen to make sure it's contingent upon a buyer, so I'm not taking on any debt. Once I install my buyer in the property and I have my payments covered, I'm going to pay your underlying debt on your behalf. stays in your name. I'm going to make that payment every single month. Deed does not transfer, however. Title does not transfer in a lease purchase. Mm-hmm. Stays in your name. I am in the middle. In, in all but one state in the United States, we call it a sandwich lease. Mm-hmm. So I'm in, I'm in the middle of the sell and the buyer, and I'm collecting three different paydays. We've trademarked out in the U.S. to three paydays, and that's pretty cool in the real estate world instead of one. So, yeah, it, it, it's a version of, and there's all sorts of nuances to these deals, but right. an agreement for sale is just that. It's an agreement for sale. You actually don't take title of the property, but you have an agreement wrapped around the existing mortgage. So it's not vendor financing. It's not seller financing. It is an agreement for a future sale. You do take over parent payments, and there could be some money that exchange. The mortgage actually stays in the seller's name, and what you're doing is, and you may lease it out. You may actually keep that bot, that seller may stay in the property. Generally, they're properties that are, you know, the buyer's motivated. He may, he or she, they may be financially behind the eight ball, having trouble, all sorts of things. So it's interesting. The point of, I guess, of all of this is what I really like about what you said, Chris, is that there's so many creative ways to invest in real estate and to put your capital to work, you know, and right now, I mean, I've been investing in real estate for 20 years and a little over 20 years. And, but I, these really are unprecedented times in terms of the need to get money, get capital working. And in your case, the way you're doing it and the strategies you're using really opens up the door to 
saying, okay, I can really leverage this. And when you look at exit strategies, you know, what are you seeing in the future in terms of what is a, is, what's a typical exit timeline and or strategy that you have? Yeah. So um, not withstanding sort of the outliers, like yeah. we'll, we'll buy some properties to keep them long term, my office building, et cetera. What we teach is we exit with a rent to own, but very, very specifically to set the buyer up to fit it within the term that works with us and our seller and to make sure they're going to be mortgage ready within that time frame. This is the big difference in the marketplace. There's a lot of educators that publicly on, on, on YouTube, if you Google it, will say, yep, I do rent on. I don't care if the buyer ever qualifies because I just take their deposit and I do another one in three years. Mm. Okay. It might be okay legally what they're doing in their world, but morally and ethically, it's awful. It's awful. So yeah. it's, it's, I wouldn't, I couldn't put my head on the pillow at night. So my son, Nick is our buyer specialist. He is very particular about pre-qualifying as if they were going to go by, except for, hey, you might have a credit tweak, but everything else has to line up. Or you might have a seasoning issue. Everything else has to line up. And here's your mortgage-ready plan that you must be accountable to or you break the agreement. So we see about a 95% cash out. And to your terms question, somewhere between, they can beat the cycle, meaning they can get real diligent and cash us out early. Sometimes they do that. But usually they'll fit within their term. They'll give you what run. They'll take what runway you gave them. So anywhere between a low of two or three years, more so in these in these longer term deals we're doing now with the market uncertainty, five, six, seven deal, uh, years. And quite frankly, we can do some of those strategies you talked about. If we have a longer term, we can go ahead and order finance the buyer and keep the deal for five, 10, 20 years. I love that structure. That's a little more advanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you uh, do you then expand when you're working with uh, your students in this conversation or yourself? Are you also doing some kind of a fix and flip strategy and behind the scenes or, or not even behind the scenes? I don't mean it that way. Do you also incorporate a fix and flip strategy or a burr strategy in your uh, in what you do? Yeah, we don't. I mean, I've done the hundreds and hundreds of them, but prior to the, the crash, but no, we don't. Um, it's a very good question because people think, okay, well, how can you do a terms deal? How can you buy creatively if it needs work? What we do is we make sure it's habitable and then we will go ahead and market it, leaving some money on the table. We'll market it to the same rent to own uh, field, but who are we looking for? We're looking for the, the handy man, the handy person. And I'll tell you, there's more people in the handyman slash builder slash rehabber space that can't go get a conventional loan today than there are other buyers. For whatever reason, they're self-employed, they don't show all their money, whatever reason, they love, love, love the fact that you're going, hey, you don't have to get a loan yet, but here's your house, go to it. Put your sweat equity into it. They love it. As long as you're pricing it fairly so you both win on that deal. So that's fantastic. So I want to go back a little bit in this conversation, Chris. I always am interested in, the journey, you know, a lot of people want the outcome. <laughs> Most people want the outcome, but they don't stop to think about the journey. They don't think about what it takes to achieve that outcome, the work that has to be done. Uh, I often use, you know, it's everybody, you know, you want the gold medal, but, you know, are you prepared? And do you really own the journey that you're on? Because you can fall in love with the illusion of the outcome and or the vision of the outcome but you have to fall in love with the journey. Now, how do you, you had mentioned your dad and your father and the business. So you, it sounds like you come from your entrepreneurial kind of 
roots or your spirit is really part of how you grew up. Is that the case? No, that is true because his dad started one branch and my, my dad brought it to five or six and sold it. And then he went into another business until he was 82 and sold that. So I've been around that. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever have a job? I had a job when I was in uh, middle school <laughs> where I had to actually lie about my age to get in. It was a, I worked in the kitchen. Uh, then I worked in his company from sweeping floors all the way up to general manager before we sold. So along the way, you know, Chris, you faced what, you know, the 2008, you know, market crash meltdown, particularly far more severe in the U.S. housing market than in Canada. Uh, it's not like we didn't feel the effects of it, but, you know, not to the degree and the extent that the U.S. did. And like you say, you got beat up. You know, one of my guests on the show, Mark Moss, who was, you know, based out of California, very, very astute investor and and a great educator as well. But he he lost millions. I mean, he lost it all, had to rebuild. Now, when you were going through that time, you know, what's kind of, when you reflect on it, what got you through it? You know, were you surrounded by great people? Were you doing, you know, like what were some of, were you using specific tools? Was there some, some things that you were doing to help you get through it? If you're giving somebody... Uh, that's facing some big challenges in their real estate world today. What what kind of guidance would you give them? This is huge. Yeah. The biggest thing, I'm not going to do this in priority. I'm just going to come from the hip. Yeah. The biggest thing is who you're around. Uh, I'll give you some specific examples. I think it always makes more sense. So when I first started, let's just say getting hit from all angles. Oh boy, the bank is going to come knocking for this loan. Oh, the value dropped by two thirds on and on. I, there were a couple of people. One I wrote about in my book, he said, Chris, you did not take down, and this guy built hundreds and hundreds of homes. His dad had been through a lot of stuff. He said, you didn't take down the national market. So just be open, honest, communicate, and keep your head up and you'll do fine. It took, now from the point he said that till, till I felt like I was fine was three or four years. Mm -hmm. But I never forget what he said. Secondly, by being around other people, there were several people in my center of influence who, who then told me their story, which whether it was past years or during that was 10 times worse, literally 10, 20 times worse. So again, I could look at them and say, okay, well then what would you do? So there was a lot of that going on, but that doesn't take the mental piece away. The mental piece, the, oh, I don't know if I can do it then, or I, I don't know if I'm worthy on and on, right? The drunk monkey, that mental piece is important. So that took specific coaches. That's bigger than anything. I, you know, uh, when we talk about the skills and the systems and all that, okay, great. But the mental in my book, the mental is 80 or 90% of the game. I don't care what business we're in. That's my opinion. And so until I rebuilt the mental side, I couldn't even get back in the business. I didn't, I didn't know consciously, I'm telling you in hindsight, that the mental piece was enormous because there was a lot of um, imposter syndrome. You know, I, I can't do it. They can. Yeah. So uh, I think I hit you with a bunch of things there, but I, the, the surroundings, the coaching, there's only two times in my life I didn't have a coach. One of them was pre-08 and the other one was in the nineties and both times I had a little headache. So there's a big lesson there. Um, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. If this stuff's been done in real estate since, you know, way before banking, why can't you just look out for someone and say, show me how to do this. And so the, the, I, I got too cocky before I thought I didn't need a coach and got stung because of it. I went right back to coaches. You know, that's interesting is that as coaches, we're both that, you know, the Real Estate Investment Network is, you know, a national coaching organization, really. 
uh, although we don't do one-on-one -on -one per se, you know, we certainly that we educate, we teach, but I, I love what you said around one fundamental thing. And this is probably the biggest, I don't want to call it a mistake, but it's the, it's the misbelief by many, I believe, which is just tell me how, tell me what to do, tell me how to do it. And I go, you know, the hows and the what's are the easy part of it all. I mean, to your point, you're not reinventing a wheel here. This has been done millions of times, millions of different ways. The hows and what's are only one part of it. To your point, I mean, you knew what you knew going into the crash in 08. You had lots of strategies. You probably didn't even screw up the strategies. You know, you were at the effect of the market. And in hindsight, we go, oh, I should have done that. And I reacted this and all the rest of it. But to your point is that if people could really wrap their mind around how important that mindset component of it is, uh, I think it would serve everybody exceptionally well. And it's why, you know, a coaching program, you know, like yours, for example, I use a phrase that says, you know, confidence is rarely owned. It's always borrowed. And although I don't own that phrase and I don't know who does, it's so true, you know, and, and, and in order to have confidence, it's sometimes you need to borrow it. You need to have that coach that says, you got this, you can do this. I'm behind you. We can make this happen. And when you look and you know consider some of the oversights perhaps of your coaching clients, Chris, do you see a consistent? Is there is there a pattern? I often say, you know, having worked with literally thousands of real estate investors over the years, one on one, one on many. I mean, we've been on stage in front of tens of thousands at this point in my career. I see patterns of success. Those individuals who seem to achieve the results, achieve their outcomes. And I see the patterns of those who don't. Now I could offer that, but what do you see from your perspective, given all the work that you've done over the years? A couple things, again, no priority order. And just to go back to the beginning of what you were saying, to put a big explanation point with some real metrics, your point is huge in the mental piece, because why is it, this is crazy, that we teach the same thing to everybody, <laughs> the core anyway, right? Yeah. But some people do a deal in 32 days and some people in our community took 365. Two, yeah. two facts, yeah. right? I'm okay with both. But why is it? It's the mental piece. That's the question. As coaches, we ask ourselves that question on an ongoing basis. So do you have some kind of an answer to it? A uh, couple things. One, we can't help until we meet someone. And that is we all, we all, me include, bring baggage to the table. I brought 08 to 12 to the table when I started terms and my coaches had to work on me on that. I don't know what everybody brings, but they bring something. So, so they need, we need specific coaches. So in our community, we try to find like, oh, they need Dr. So-and-so. Oh, they need this coach. So we try to help them with that. Secondly, this is big in real estate. It might be other niches too, but uh, industries rather, but managing expectations. So sort of to what you were alluding to, like they see this go on. They see so-and-so did it. They don't know what so-and-so's baggage, skill set, system, anything was, or mindset, but they have this expectation or the ad told them late night TV that they can get rich tomorrow. So it doesn't happen tomorrow. They need money like they need water and they get discouraged and they go to the next shiny object. Mm -hmm. And you got this jump, 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 jump. I scream from the rooftops, Patrick, I'm sure you do. In my videos, in my, you start with us, you have to apply I just don't want someone to come in and go, yep, I got to do this tomorrow. It's not going to, no, it's, it's not. So the mismanaged expectations is enormous, I think, in, in the real estate space. Um, and then 
Secondly, it's usually, I think, jumping too quick in real estate because of the shiny object that they think they can do it tomorrow, meaning jumping from a full-time job to real estate. Yeah, We've done it successfully with people, but those are the people that said to us, hey, Chris, I got like a 12-month uh, or 18 or 24-month window. Can you help me do this? Not haphazardly without our guidance jumping in, getting frustrated, and then saying it doesn't work. And then these are all real stories. I'm, you know, These aren't things I'm just surmising. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's just such a rampant thing right now. Well, I think it is, and it is very rampant because, and and I'm sure it's the same in many parts of the U.S., but in Canada, you know, when when hey, listen, let's face it, when whether it's the stock market or real estate or cryptocurrency or whatever the hell it might be, when it's going up, everybody's a genius, you know, it's going up and I'm an investing genius and my neighbor's getting rich and my brother-in-law's getting rich and, you know, my boss is hitting it out of the park. And so there's a lot of FOMO that gets generated by that. Of course, everybody's talking about the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possible millions that they're making, none of which have cashed in, by the way, all of which are generally paper you know, it's been paper wealth created generally. And so, yeah, you all look like a genius until something changes and you realize that you've built a whole portfolio on a foundation that won't take the hit. And that could be strategy, tactic, financing, whatever that might be. You know, that's part of one of that conversation. But secondly, you know, what you said is very interesting about the baggage that we bring to to any given table the reality of it is, is that you came through 08. You now have a set of filters that you can't help but see the world through. You know, you've, you've had that traumatic experience and that trauma adjusts the filters that you're looking at the world through. And that may not be a positive thing. It may leave you overly cautious. It may leave you looking at everything on the, on the dark side of the conversation so do you address those kind of topics? I know you go through an application process. Uh, my wife and I, by the way, we on, on this podcast, The Everyday Millionaire, we also do a segment called The Everyday Millionaire Mindset Matters, which is my wife and I, and she's an Olympic mental performance coach. So we do little, little short segments of that mindset. When you go through your application process or when you're working with your clients, are you picking up on those kinds of views of the world, if you will? Yes, this is how we do. And I think it's directly your answer. You tell me if it's a little off. And, and that is, they've got to not just fill out the application, they've got to do a video to explain why they think they're good with the community. And what we look at is values. We have values as a company. Yep. If they're not in alignment with those, our experience has been awful. So we just don't do anymore. Yep. And, and so that also the values in and of themselves will will put the bumpers on the lane, so to speak. Big filter. Yeah. 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 And then I'll give you, a, I'll give you a simple formula, I think. And this is what I say to, to people when they're applying, um, because I want to make sure they're in the right spot. I'm not so naive to think our niche is the only niche. So here's what I say. Pick a niche and get behind. Like you can get passionate about it. Some people like wholesaling. I don't think there's much emotion there. Other people love what we do because they can help. Whatever you, it is for you. It's okay. No wrong answer. That's number one. There's only three steps. Number two is then to your point, find someone that you can get behind, not just from real estate success, get behind them, their values, their, their, their mission, everything, because we expose that and make sure they're not new money. And I can say this because your experience on your show, I'm safe. I'm in a safe zone here. Mm -hmm. If you're talking to someone that did not go through any cycles or any crashes, 
like God forbid, if you listen to someone post COVID, they started coaching. They just don't know. Don't pretend they do. You can't do that to yourself. So find someone, but find someone that's weathered a bunch of storms. You'll have a good experience. And third, put the blinders on for bare minimum three years. Um, I had Brian Tracy on and he said, no, 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 seven, Chris. Here's, my, here's the cycle. And he went through it. Yeah. But I, I don't mean three, you're going to have success. I mean, if you commit mentally to three, you won't get thrown off by the first curveball. Mm-hmm. Um, to, your, to your earlier comment about the how, it's going to be a lot of pivoting, like a playing on route. But if you commit to three, you won't go for the shiny object. So those are three steps, in my opinion, for success in any business, let alone real estate. Yeah, I love it. I really, really like it. You know, it's interesting what you said about, you know, looking for some maybe what we would call some some seasoned capital. But at the end of the day, you know, we we do a we actually teach a raising capital. We have a raising capital program. And in that program, I say to students or clients that the most difficult thing you will probably ever do is push a check away for a quarter million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars because the person writing it is not should not be writing that check. And as much as they're excited about it and they want to do it, it will be the most difficult thing that you do to say, no, not this time. You know, maybe I'll circle back next time. It's it's a, those are tough conversations, especially when you're looking for money. You know, when you're raising capital for a project. But to your point, that can uh, that often goes sideways. You know, and that's really what we want to try and avoid. We have a lot of um, similarities here because you that was in light of um, raising money, but the same goes for someone applying for our program. I remember during COVID, of all times, most educators would say, "Why did you do that?" We've said no to a handful of applicants for a myriad of reasons, one of which you just said, it's just they shouldn't be doing it, uh, or it was a value issue to the point where they were shocked and almost insulted if we don't handle it properly. This, you're not a fit, and you shouldn't be writing that check. So, yes, I agree a million percent. Um, we'd be very selective. And unfortunately, uh, or maybe fortunately for you and I, but unfortunately for the, for the uh, public, uh, most educators won't do that. They, they, yeah, they don't want to work. Yeah, they don't want to walk away from it. But I want to go back to a fundamental because it's so important to business overall. I mean, our community. There's a you know, I I want to say about sixty percent of our entrepreneurs, you know, small business owners, or you know, uh, doesn't matter. They they could be one man shows. But the point is, is that I love the conversation that we touched on, and I want to dig a little bit deeper into it. Is around values. Because it's one of the most important conversations that anybody can have. And they, I think it's, it's the most overlooked and overstepped because people don't understand it and don't necessarily relate to it. They're just doing business. And they don't stop long enough to define their values or to even realize what they are. So the next thing you know, they're crossing over with, misaligned values, which, you know, often turns out to be bad news. You know, that's how partnerships, and, I, and, and listen, I'm very experienced at not honoring my values, going off, getting out of integrity with my values for any reason that there's multitude of reasons. I've made those very, very expensive mistakes. So I think it's such an important conversation. I have it all the time. I try and drive it, but I want to hear it from you is that you, you talked about your company values or even your personal values. I'm sure they're the same or very similar. What are your values? What, when, you, when you describe your values to a potential client and you say, do we align? Give me a little bit of background on that, Chris. 
Yeah, I'll give you some of the values and we just turn them into questions, right? Like describe yep. a time when. So conducting all transactions with the highest integrity. Because we're from New England, you'll love this one. Just clear, blunt, to the point, no gray area. Yep. Does not give anyone the, ch- the opportunity or the card to, to um, be rude. It's just clear communication. Yep. Um, team over me, big one, especially as you're growing a company, especially as you work in the field with students. It's a big, because there's a lot of giving. And then matching effort for effort is huge because of what you and I talked about earlier with managing expectations and those things. I, I always say, I don't want to push a noodle or a rope. Mm-hmm. I want to match effort for effort, but someone that wants to run will pour gas on it and will run just as fast. So I think that's important because in the coaching world, a lot of people will spend 80% of the time with those that you kind of feel like you're pushing a noodle or pushing a rope and it's just not necessary. So despite defining everything ahead of time and showing the values, that's a biggie front. They're all big. Um, yeah, so yeah, those are the values. Yeah. I, I break them down a little bit. Uh, those are awesome, by the way. I love that. And you've, you've, you've given me a couple of ideas around it, but you know what, some of what you describe, uh, you know, part of in our own coaching program uh, that we do, and we don't do it to the degree you do. It's a total more of a self-discovery coaching program. But one of the things we talk about with potential clients is coachability. And, you know, that's, that's sometimes hard to determine, I find, but is because everybody thinks they're coachable, but they're really not. They want change, but actually what they want is circumstances to change, but they don't want to change. They want everybody around them to change, or they want circumstances to change, but they don't really want that change. So coachability uh, is, is a very tough conversation for some to understand do you run into that? And, and, and the reason I have this conversation with you, because I want listeners to understand and to consider and ask themselves the question, you know, are you coachable? And like I say, everybody automatically, you know, no, I'm totally coachable. Oh, really? Are you? And, and, and so what's your experience with that? What, what words of wisdom might you have in that conversation, Chris? Yeah. I don't know if you show video, but the only reason I was cracking up is uh, part of the surf, uh, the application process is, are you coachable? We kind of ask it five different ways. Yet you have people that in month two go, yeah, but and then they have all the things they're going to do. So here's A through Z, just do it. Well, I like A, I kind of like F, and maybe it feels good to do D. So, But I, it just blows my mind. So there's all these videos and applications and things we do as coaches to try to circumvent that. But reality is, I wish I could tell you we, we've licked it. We haven't. People come in and they say they're coachable and their ego gets in the way or whatever gets in the way. Look, I've been there. It's not easy. But I try to tell them to wipe the whiteboard clean. And let's start with that in mind. But let's go back to the formula. Three years. I don't want to hear about it for three years. I want you to have blinders on for three years. It's not easy. I get it. But that, but I agree with you. It doesn't, it doesn't happen despite all our efforts to make sure everybody's coachable. It's an interesting conversation, isn't it? And I know that uh, it took me a long time to become coachable and to really understand what that meant. And, and I'm sure that you see it often, Chris, and I know I do. And that is, is that as a coach, you see the possibilities and you actually see the skills and what you believe that person can achieve and do, they don't see it. You know, it's like I've trained all my life, you know, in a gym and I've worked out and, and only because I'm, I'm a bit of a, I've been a, fit, a bit of a fitness buff and my coach in my, the, I always had a coach or, or most of the time I had a coach and he always knew I could do more. So he'd say, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's add a dime aside, you know, let's squat that. And I'm going, 
dude, are you fucking kidding me right now? I can't do that. And he just laughs and he goes, give me 12, you know, or no, actually he, he'd always say, give me eight to 12. And he knew that I was always going to go for 12. But at the end of the day, it was really understanding that your coach knows more about you than you know, because you've got all sorts of filters, all sorts of story. And you don't want to be uncomfortable. You're picking A, F, and Z because, you know, D and Q are way more uncomfortable than you think that you can handle. Thoughts? What came to mind when you were saying that was um, the word or the phrase uh, confirmation bias. Because we, I was just doing some notes to this for our next event because we all, but let's say the students we're talking about now, tend to watch, hang out with, read things that confirm what we think we already know, right? Oh, uh, true. Even if you're talking politics, and I'm not into politics at, at well, all. It, it's more than ever these days, right? Because it's divisive, it's polar, it's all of the things. And so, yes, I totally agree with you. There is that for so sure. So what do we do? We we watch the same Stop. station that's that, that slant. So. Yeah. All that to say that there's there's one way to to maybe break out of what you and I talk about because I think some listeners might be going okay cool what if I'm open to breaking out of that and the way to do it is maybe ask yourself questions like all right well what does Patrick and Chris see that makes them break out of that confirmation bias that I'm not seeing like just maybe ask that open ended question or maybe what if it were easy like they, I know they're saying that but what if it were easy what might that look like somehow jiggle your confirmation bias to get that drunk monkey off your shoulder. Because if not, you're down the same path and you get the same result. I know that's cliche too, but man. But, but you know something, what you just said is really, really key, right? How do you bust your confirmation bias? You know, so I, I look at what's going on economically. I do look at what's happening politically in Canada. Not that I think one party will do a better job than the other, but I do listen to both sides, even though I have a lot of trouble listening to our current prime minister, like just his voice, just like I, I could read the executive summary, but I can't listen to the guy. But the point is, is that I force myself to listen to what he's saying and look at the other side of the coin. And it, it is uncomfortable. It is annoying. And it is like exasperating because you feel like you got no control over it. But that's not what we're talking about here. You actually do have control over what you choose to do and how you view the world. You know, famous Wayne Dyer, one of my most favorite quotes, one of my favorite quotes by Wayne Dyer was, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And in order to shift the confirmation bias, you have to change the way you look at things and consider another point of view. So I love that that part of the conversation. It's actually refreshing if you try it, and uh, we all get stuck in it. Just you, just you saying that jiggled some things in me. Like, we all get stuck in it. So... Mm-hmm. Challenge yourself. If you get to put a sticky on your computer or your, your dashboard, whatever it is, challenge yourself to take the opposite view or at least open to learning the opposite view and watch what that does to you mentally. You, it's like that rubber band thing. You know, once you do that, you just stretch to a new level. You can't see it physically with the rubber band, but it's never back to the same shape. Same with the with the brain and the confirmation bias. Yeah. Back to your point is that that is a mindset. And that's why we talk about, you know, the most important piece of real estate you'll ever own is between your ears. Uh, the good news is, is you already own it. So when you look at your particular business and your vision for where you see it, you know, do you have illusions of, I don't want to say illusions, but do you have big visions for your business? Do you, you know, where do you see the market going? And when you look at what's happening in the world today, are you, do you still, do you just look at it as there's lots of opportunity? Are you very optimistic? How are you looking at the world given what's going on today, Chris? 
Yeah, I, I am super optimistic. And here's here's our thought and part of our mission and part of our next mission, which is to change the landscape of financing in the real estate world. Like to really talk about jiggling the confirmation bias, to really jiggle the real estate market because banks, let's face it, I don't think they're getting easier to deal with. I think they're getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And so it's opening up opportunity for an entire world of creative finance. Did you know, like statistically, Back like 90, early 90s, the amount of deals that were done, at least in the U.S., creatively outside of banks was minuscule, like 2%, 3%. I've searched high and low to get better stats, but that article way back then said that by 2000, 2010, as it started creeping towards and away from the crash, we were in the teens. That's encouraging, but it still hasn't scratched the surface. And there's so many more deals that can be done like that. And, and the way we look at it is this, two families, every time we uh, we uh, do a deal, two are affected generationally because these are buyers or sellers sometimes the thought they were stuck forever. So with tears in their eyes, now they tell their, their kids and their kids' kids and it's generational wealth changing hands. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So aside from, you know, uh, real estate, Chris, uh, do, you, do you invest in, what are you saying? Do you invest outside of real estate or are you pretty focused on that one asset class? What else do you do? Okay. So pretty folks in real estate. Yes, because that's what I'm comfortable with. So I don't, I'm not comfortable quote unquote with stock market, but do I have experts um, that, that like creative planning is one of the companies I use. Yeah. They, I, Tony Robbins is, was part of their board. I think they're amazing. I think they're one of a kind. I'm not, I don't, I'm not yep. part of their company or anything. So I don't get the wrong impression, but I will only do that with people that have that expertise. And then I love taking the three paydays that we develop and help the students to this and then go, okay, then go invest that. You earn it. You have three paydays. Now go put that into some, maybe some bigger commercial mixed use or multifamily, whatever it is for you. Yeah. Go redeploy that. But I can try to get there without putting money in the market. Okay. So the three paydays, I don't want to step over it. Can you give me a overview of that? Yeah, real simple. The way we trade and market is this. When the buyer comes in, they're a true buyer. They just can't do it yet. So they have a ramp. So that first down payment they give, that's your payday one. It's non-refundable. They're a buyer. They're putting that down. Number two, payday, there's a spread between what you're paying the seller or their underlying debt and what you're getting from your buyer while they're in this vehicle to get financing. And number th- and that's small, but it's every house every month. And then third payday is the back end. That's the mark up if you did in the price, which we do and all of the principal pay down throughout the term. So payday one, money now, payday two, money monthly, payday three, long-term. I, I never had that. You just always get paid once and then get back on the treadmill. Sure, love it. Now, you've got, we got a tight timeline today, so I got to start to wind things down. I could certainly expand this conversation, but with respect to your time, and I know you got to travel, so... <laughs> We'll we'll short it up, Chris. So I appreciate it. As we wind it down, a couple of uh, just what we'll call some rapid fire questions that I like to put out there just for some fun, and uh, you know they're they're rarely rapid fire, but sometimes they are. Okay, short and sweet. iPhone or Android? iPhone. iPhone. Ah, were you ever an Android guy? Yes. Okay. See, and you went over to iPhone. You went to the the other side. Huh? Yeah, I did. I <laughs> thought I never would, but I did. Okay. Yeah, well, I was the same way. I went, to, I went, but you know, to be honest with you, I don't know. Technology to me, iPhone's great, but I, I don't know that it has all that much over Android. And that's, I don't use it for what they have. I yeah, don't use one yeah. percent of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what's your favorite swear word? Oh fuck! Fuck yeah! 
Favorite inspirational quote? Do you have one? I, I'm going to botch it up, but it's it's the persistence quote by, um, you know, botch up who did it too. But when I was going through all my crap mm-hmm. in 08, the, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not remembering the word for it, but the persistence trumps all. Yeah. Really helped because it was a grind. It was a grind and you got through it. You're married? Oh, yeah. 36 years this year. Good for you. Congratulations. I don't often ask this question, but I was asked, I was a guest on a podcast the other day and somebody said, you know, who's the most influential person in your life? And it it was without hesitation, it was my wife. And when you consider, uh, I'm not asking you that question, but when you consider that time in your life, how important was it for you to stay grounded in your relationship and how important was your relationship? A million percent. You can't, you can't put a a tag on that. I know People to this day that call me and say, hey, I heard your story and here's mine. They either still had their head in the sand or their spouse didn't didn't support them or worse, kicked them out and got divorced. Yeah. It's huge. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Uh, nice job. What do you hate doing, but you do it anyways because you're good at it? Hate doing it anyway because you're good at it. Uh, I guess I'd go back to the basics here. We have an event coming up called Back to Basics. So that that I'm good at prospecting. You know, that's how I built my career. I, yeah. I don't need to or want to do it now, but I, I can do it. I'm yeah. really good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most impactful book that you've read or one that you gift because it had an impact on your life? This changes. I, I always answer this way. And this one, Patrick, sorry for the longer answer here, but this changes only because every six or 12 months, my brain goes, what, what should I improve on next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most recently, Michael Dell's book really was, I think, really cool book. It's fairly recent, and he talks business, he talks challenges, he talks big business, small business. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I, you know, I get asked that question, and I ask that question. I think I might restructure the question because, to your point, as we evolve and change, um, yeah, you know, we. But having said that, uh, you know, believe it or not. Uh, and I'm, it's not a case of believe it or not, but you know, a book that comes up often with my guests is Rich Dad, Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki and or The Wealthy Barber. I mean, those are two books that for many open the door to you know reading more and, oh, and looking yeah. at the world through a different set of filters. And that's what I think, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and uh, whatever uh, the four quadrants, I think it is. It was interesting about that book, and I and I still follow Robert Kiyosaki and all his. He's he's a cool he's a cool cat, a weird duck, but he's he's you know he does he's he's you know he's pretty I- iconic, and I love the fact that he's seventy five years old and still doing it. I find that quite inspirational. But the point is, is that those two books for me opened up the conversation and opened up the thought process that there's a lot more out there, and that was kind of a a bit of a fork in the road for me in terms of my own education into uh, real estate and business and all the rest of it. So that's my view of that. But did you have a fork in the road moment in your life? Fork in the road moment. Yeah. Wait, crash. Uh, Because I almost didn't get back in real estate. Yeah. Got it. Favorite tune. Do you have one? Well, yeah. ACDC Thunder. We play at every event. My (laughs) kids are going, will you just change the theme song? No, that's the song. That's the song. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Favorite movie? Got one lately? Lately? Um, again, this is going to be a where I am in in, yep. in the moment. Um, we saw The Dog last week, and uh, I thought it was really cool for a lot of reasons. I like military movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And finally, Chris, what are you grateful for? 
I'm grateful for my family. Uh, my why is to make enough money to do the things money can't buy, which is to create family experiences, so family. Fantastic. And as always, I am grateful for having had the opportunity to uh, have this conversation with you, Chris. Thanks for joining me on the show. And like you, I'm always most grateful for my family and uh, the community that I'm surrounded by. So thank you for your time. And uh, I hope we cross paths again soon. Thank you, buddy. You're awesome. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.